few months back, I made a deal with a pastor. Here was the deal. He asked me to speak at his church, and I said, only if you come and speak at our church. Well, that was a Dr. David Jeremiah with Shadow Mountain Community Church. The one that I'm going to introduce to you now is the one who was the founder of Shadow Mountain Community Church. And he pastored there for 25 years. Eventually, that church grew to three locations. Uh, During that time, uh, Tim LaHaye founded two accredited Christian high schools, a school system of ten Christian schools and Christian Heritage College. Uh, Dr. Tim LaHaye also assisted uh, Dr. Henry Morris in founding the Institute for Creation Research. And that was a great help to me when I was doing my medical training. I really appreciated their work. Dr. LaHaye was started the Pre-Tribulation, Pre-Trib Research Center. He's the author of 50 books. And the Left Behind series, which everybody knows about, sold 60 million copies. Pretty impressive. But you know, at heart, he's just a regular guy, a servant of the Lord, a wonderful pastor. Please welcome Dr. Tim LaHaye. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Steve. Wow. Thank you. (laughs) Wow. My father would have enjoyed that introduction. My mother would have believed it. (laughs) What an honor to be with you today in this incredible prophecy conference. I mean, prophecy is what I'm all about in the last 25 years of my life. And uh, I'm just so thrilled that on Saturday afternoon, so many of you have come. I'll try my best not to drive you away. Uh, (laughs) But prophecy is God's means, and I'll show you in a moment, Uh, how God uses prophecy, fulfilled prophecy, to prove that he alone is the Lord. Now get your pencil out because I want you to write it down. But before you do that, I'm not just about speaking on prophecy. I want God's people to be blessed by prophecy because prophecy has done three things for people. Whenever they get stirred by the prophetic word of God, it causes them to be more evangelistic. It causes them to be more missionary-minded. It causes them to be more interested in holy living in an unholy age. And I submit to you that's one of the major things we need today. So I'm commending you for studying prophecy, but make it a priority in your life because it is all the motivation it gives you is helpful. Now, on the book table back there, we have special prices for special books, and I want to tell just a few of them. I brought... Too many books. I have written too many books to bring along. I don't have a freight train. And, uh, <laughs> but I wanted you to see this one. I've always dreamed of a charted book of prophecy. Fifty of the major charts, or major issues of prophecy are charted in this book and described. It's a seminary course that you can do at home. But I'm, I'm just so grateful to God for his blessing. I had the vision for this, and I went to a publisher, and I said, I want a fold-out chart to start this. And they said, no, you can't. It's impossible. And I wanted to show you what's impossible. <laughs> it's, it's God's plan of the ages. And once that grips you, I, I don't think you can really understand God or his method until you understand his plan for your future. God has a has two plans for you. One, the long road, long-range prophecy that he has for all of us, his plan for the future. And we will, and by the way, the best is yet to come. <laughs> Believe me. And then he has a plan for you, for your life. He wants to use your life. And I want to tell you, as a veteran of the ministry for over 61 years, the best bargain you can ever make with God is to give it to him. It blesses you in this world and the world to come, and it even blesses you in your life and marriage. I see so many young people. How many of you are single? Let me hold up your hand. Okay, look around, see who's here. <laughs> I, have a, I have a great affinity as a pastor for 37 years. I, I have an affinity for marrying people. I think I've married over 356 people. That's about three more than I've buried. And... Uh, <laughs> 
And it's exciting. I love to see people get together and be maritally happy. I have been blessed in that I've been married for 61 years. And I want to I want to tell you the two secrets. Always obey these secrets. Number one, you only want to marry a committed Christian. And two, you want to marry someone who has your calling, the same calling you have to serve Jesus Christ. And it's best if that person has found that before they ever met you. My wife and I met in a Christian college. She was only three years old when we met. And, <laughs> and uh, we have literally, and I, I'm not saying this for effect, this is true. We have literally had a running romance for 61 years. And that's the best way to live. Now, <clears throat> to help you folks that are learning about prophecy for the first time, uh, my colleagues and I in the Pre-Trib Research Center um, moved together and we wrote the Prophecy Study Bible. It's called Tim LaHaye, and i got to explain why. There were four of us that made the vote, and they suggested we put my name on it, and so I lost three to one. And... Uh, <laughs> Anyway, it's the Tim LaHaye Prophecy Study Bible, and I've always wanted to have charts and diagrams, and it's got 16 color charts in it. It's a, a wealth of material, but the dream I had was that the, the explanation for a prophecy would be on the same page as the prophecy in the Bible. So you'll find a, a course there. And then, of course, there are other books on the book table. I won't bore you with them. Commentary on um, every passage of prophecy in the Scripture. And in my latest book that has three chapters of what I'm going to get to you today, if I get time to get to it, um, that is global warmings. No, no, global warnings. <laughs> the big mistake I made with this was not dedicating it to Al Gore. <laughs> Enough said. The question that I answer in this book is, are we on the brink of World War III? And may I point out to you that I believe not only that, but we're also on the brink of the second coming of Jesus. Or the first, the first phase of the second coming of Jesus, which is the rapture of the church. But that's a session for tomorrow. Turn with me in your Bible to two passages of Scripture. Uh, first of all, I want to be very quick and give you this that I want you to memorize. In Isaiah 46, Isaiah was the prince of prophets. He ranks up there with Daniel himself. And, of course, Ezekiel and Jeremiah, they're hard to beat. No wonder they're called the major prophets. But Isaiah lived at a time when Israel had apostatized, and they were worshiping idols, and he couldn't understand why people would make something with their hands, cover it with silver and gold or platinum, and then bow down and worship it. And then worse than that, ask it questions about the future. What should I do? It's insane. And yet they were doing that. And so God himself spoke through Isaiah with these words, ninth verse. These are the verses that you should memorize. By the way, I only found these about three years ago. And uh, I, it just tuned me into the importance of Bible prophecy. Remember the former things of old, all the miracles I perform in saving the children of Israel is what he's saying. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there's none like me. Now, that's an astonishing thing for God to say through his great prince of prophets. But then he shows us how we can believe that, declaring... The end from the beginning. Now, what is the end? The last days. How the world is going to come to its end. That's going to be the, the subject of my next series of fiction books. The end. As we're approaching the end, we need to see that God has a plan. He said, I declare the end from the beginning. Now, when I first read that, as one of the, the founders of the Institute for Creation Research and a colleague of Dr. Henry Morris, who's Mr. Creationism, uh, I couldn't help but wonder, why does he start with the end first? 
instead of as he starts in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Very simply, because there were no witnesses to creation. There are all kinds of witnesses to prophecies that have been fulfilled. And just to whet your appetite for this, do you know how many prophecies there are in the Bible? Over 1,000, closer to 1,100. We have them all listed in our Prophecy Study Bible. And then he said, I am the one that can declare the end from the beginning. Well, with over 1,000 prophecies in the Bible, you reckon with the fact that over 500 of them have already been fulfilled. Whenever someone says to you, why do you take Bible prophecy literally? Very simply, because over 500 prophets prophesied something in their time and it has already been fulfilled. For example, I'll just give you one. I, I don't want to get carried away on this because I got my message that I've been assigned and I can't wait to get to. But... Uh, <laughs> It is incredible how God himself has given us clarion illustration that this is the supernaturally written word of God. Everything we hold dear is in this Bible. Everything that we base our future expectations on is in this Bible. And we believe that it came from God. It says that over 1,200 times in the Bible. How do we know it? Because the Bible has fulfilled over 500 prophecies, literally. For example, how in the world do we know that Jesus, of the 13 billion people that are either on the earth today or have lived in the aggregate population of the world, how do we know that Jesus is the only person that has fulfilled all the messianic prophecies? By laying them out, and you find 109 prophecies just of the Messiah. And how many did Jesus fulfill? All of them. How do I know that he is the only one that is the way to God? Because he's the only one that has fulfilled all the prophecies. For example, do you know how many someone else may have fulfilled by the time he's born of the seed of the woman? He's uh, born of Abraham's seed and Jacob and Joshua uh, and uh, uh, Judah and David and Born of a virgin. I mean, we're getting really other limited number of that 13 billion. And that's only scratching the surface. Jesus fulfilled them all. I don't think anyone who's ever lived has fulfilled more than seven or eight prophecies. But Jesus fulfilled them all. Therefore, we can trust him to keep his word and his blood could cleanse all our sin. Well, let that whet your appetite for the subject of Bible prophecy. Now to get to the subject that I've been assigned and I can't wait to get to. Turn with me in your Bible just over a couple more prophets. Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. One of the most astonishing chapters in the Bible. In fact, these two chapters come right after chapters 36 and 37. (laughs) And you know why? Because... 36 and 37 tell us about an absolute miracle that has taken place in our generation. The children of Israel were without a homeland for 1,700 years. In the year 135, the Roman emperor issued a decree. He was so disgusted with the the Jews and they're always creating a revolution or something. He issued a mandate that anyone that finds a Jew in Palestine could kill them legally. Now, that would make the Jews rather scarce in the land. And they went from from 135 to 7, they were scattered all over the world. Now, no nation in the history of the world, you can check this out, has ever succeeded in being lifted up from its national homeland and taken to another land or scattered around the world that's been able to maintain its identity for more than 300 years. For example, have you ever met a Hittite? And yet at one time, they were an enormously powerful nation. And there are many other illustrations of people that have sunk beneath the sands of time. But how many of you have met a Jew? And you see, the Jews lived somewhere for 1,700 years. 
All the while, the Bible prophets were saying they'd be gathered back into the land. And just at the turn of the century, last century, they began coming back into the land until today. There are almost six million of them in the land. And we don't have any question that Ezekiel 36 and 37 is talking about that because in the 11th verse, he's talking about the bones coming to his bones and so on in the valley. And he says, these bones are the whole house of Israel. So what do we have? The regathering, and it's been fulfilled in our lifetime. What an incredible indication that this is the book of God. We can trust it. Okay, now with that in mind, we take you into the future with the children of Israel coming back into the land. Now, God said, and remember as we go through this, this was written 2,500 years ago. And the prophet was moved by God to say, Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog and the land of Magog and the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal and prophesy against them and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. I will turn you around, put hooks into your jaws, and lead you out with all your army, horses, and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields and all of them handling swords. You mean to say we're going back into that kind of warfare? We could. You know, they've discovered that if they put a, a neutron bomb up into the atmosphere about 250 miles, that it can shut off and fry every electronic part in the whole country. You put one in, in over Kansas City, they say, and it'll wipe out everything in the United States. It won't kill the people. But it'll wipe out everything that we depend on. All you folks that didn't turn your cell phone off, it'll be wiped out. <laughs> okay, now notice what he said. Prophesy against these nations. And God said, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, Prince of Rosh, Meshach. I will turn you around, put hooks into your jaws, and lead you out with all your army, horses, and horsemen all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya are with them, all of them, with shield and helmet. Now, back to the implements of war. Remember, Ezekiel was teaching this 2,500 years ago. Those were the typical means of warfare. He may have used what they understood. Can you imagine if he said tanks and airplanes and nuclear bombs and all that? I mean, obviously, he used what they could understand, and then we make a 21st century application. All right. Gomer and all the troops, the house of Togarma, from the far north and all its troops, many people with you. Now, what I want you to see is four things in this passage of Scripture. I want to deal with quickly who we're talking about. What is going to happen, when it will happen, and why. So keep that in mind as we go. I'm going to bounce back and forth because I want to pick this out and seal it into your mind. This is one of the premier passages of Scripture, and you will find that many prophecy scholars shy away from this because it's so complex. But if I have a gift, it is simple simplifying the truths of God. And that's what I want to share with you. Quickly, instead of spending a lot of time on who, let me call your attention to the ancient names and the current name. Rosh is obviously Russia. Um, Magog is Russia, part of Russia. Meshach is Turkey and Tubal is Turkey. Persia is Iran. Cush is Sudan in modern terms. Put is Libya. And Gomer and Beth Togarma are both Turkey. Now, on this map, you'll see these spelled out, and they all are pointed at the nation of Israel. And the intriguing thing is, the one thing that they have in common is a hatred for the children of Israel. It's almost devilish. Well, it is. Satan has inspired them to hate the children of Israel, the people that God loves. Now, look at that map. And you see the Mediterranean Sea on one side and the Arabian Desert on the other. Do you know why God laid the children there? This is the center of the earth. But do you know why God gave it to the children of Israel? 
His original plan was, in giving them the Ten Commandments and blessing them incredibly, that they would become a model to the rest of the world. They're, they're a bridge between the continents of the north and the continent to the south. And he intended for them to communicate as travelers would go from one to the other, and they had to do much trafficking there. They would see what a blessed land. And when you read the story of the Queen of Sheba who went into Solomon's uh, area and looked at his land, and she said these classic words, the half has not been told of the blessing. Now, that's what God wanted to do with the children of Israel. Unfortunately, he had warned them that if you don't obey me, I'll bring a curse upon you. And they didn't obey him, and he brought a curse. And that bridge then became the bridge of armies from the north. Anyone in the north that wanted to go into the south and conquer Egypt, they had to go over the bridge of Israel. And Israel, what was supposed to be a time of blessing, became a time of cursing or a place of cursing. So you understand some of the history of why it went about like this. And God intended the the whole world to profit by recognizing that there was a God in heaven who could bless their people if they will obey him. Remember this, God's commitment to obedience has never changed. The one thing he wants us to do is commit our way unto the Lord, trust also in him, and he will bring it to pass. That's his indelible, indelible eternal blessing. Well, we've got to get on, but what I want you to see before we turn from the map, gee, forget that guy. Look at the map. <laughs> Here we are. You notice something about these nations? Something about these nations that are very interesting? Number one, they're all the current enemies of Israel. They're all the current enemies of Israel. But there's one nation in that enemy or that neighbor list of, of countries that isn't mentioned. Notice what it is? Iraq. Now, I'm just speculating. Why in the world would Iraq be missing? Because America has gone over there and bought up over 125 acres of property and is building the biggest embassy in the entire world. That's going on right now. Does it make you think maybe there's something special preserved for uh, Iraq? Well, may I suggest that uh, it could be the future home of the United Nations. Uh, United Nations. <laughs> you know, slip of the tongue, you know. You know, the, the, I remember some of you young people, you don't remember this, but I, I was preaching in Minneapolis as a pastor, and I was preaching about the, the futility of the United Nations getting together, all the countries, and solving the problem of world peace. And I said, it's doomed to failure. Why? Because in order to placate the Soviets, they eliminated God from the entire process. And have you ever seen that classic picture of the... The, I think the Seventh-day Adventist or something put it out, the tall picture of Jesus knocking at the United Nations building, and he's on the outside knocking for entrance. Well, that's the picture. They left Jesus out. I've been there. I've seen him worshiping, announcing the worship at 9 o'clock the next morning of the Wiccans. But you can't have Jesus there. Amazing how they are antagonistic. But the thing that I want to call your attention to, I predicted it would be a failure. In the 55 or so years that the United Nations has been there, we have had more wars than in any other comparable period of time in history. More people have died as an act of government during the time of the United Nations, and yet they want, would have us believe. In fact, I'm criticized when I'm inter interviewed by someone on TV for saying, that, saying something negative about the United Nations. Do you know why I say something negative about it? Because I know what's going to happen to it. There is a one-world government coming, and we're seeing it, and I'm not sure it's always going to be in Manhattan. Thank God for that. Um, <laughs> it could be that this new era or this new place for the United Nations could be the home of the Antichrist capital, or both. 
It could be the United Nations moves to, you know, they're complaining about how they can't park on every street. The people in New York complain because they can't find a place to park. And uh, you'll find a lot of tension, and it's, you know, murder capital, and they'd like to get out of New York, and uh, we'd like to have them get out of New York. (laughs) But uh, I kind of believe that Babylon is going to be rebuilt. Well, I don't kind of believe it. I know it's going to be rebuilt because there are four passages that talk about its future. And just read Revelation chapter 17, 13 and 17, you'll see the future of it. We don't have time to go into that. But it could be that that's the place where the Antichrist is going to come in. When he takes over the world, it would seem like he would just move into the United Nations. And it'd be just like the United States when they give away all of our tax money, you know, just tax us and give it to whoever, the bankers or stockholders or whoever needs it. We'll just fill, it, fill everybody's pocket except the people that pay the taxes. And the good news is, according to one of the candidates, only 5% of the people are going to be taxed. <laughs> I'm, I'm, not, I'm not getting political. I want you to understand that. Okay, now what is going to happen with these nations that are surrounding Israel and want to stamp her out? Well, look at verse 8. He says, After many days you will be visited in the latter years. I'll come back to that in a moment when we get to when. You will come into the land of those brought back from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. They were brought out of the nations, and now all of them dwell safely. You will ascend, coming like a storm, covering the land like a cloud, you and all your troops and many peoples with you. Doesn't that sound like an airborne invasion? Have you ever been to Fort Benning, Georgia, and watched the, the paratroopers come out in mass? I mean, just, the sky is filled with all, just, just like that. Thus says the Lord God, On that day it shall come to pass that thoughts will arise in your mind and you will make an evil plan. You will say, I will go up against a land of unwalled villages. By the way, that's the situation today. Even the wall around Jerusalem, the gates aren't locked at night. Remember in the old days they used to have the needle tie. That was a small gate that they let in and the camels would have to get down, take off their low load for, tra- for travelers or caravans and come in on their, their knees and because of safety. And then they'd open the gate during the daylight time if there was nobody there. But now they don't even close the gates. Why? Because this is a time of unwalled gates or unwalled villages. Um, I will go to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates. And that's the condition of the cities of, of Israel today and in the Middle East. But may I point out that, that we are only a, a treaty away from seeing um, a time of peace, temporary time of peace that could be negotiated. And he says to take a plunder and to take a booty, to stretch out your hand against the waste places that are again inhabited and against the people gathered from the nations. Who is this going to be? The people that have been gathered from the nations, the children of Israel, who have acquired livestock and goods, who dwell in the midst of the land. And you know enough about Israel to know that it is the most flourishing country in all of the Middle East because of God's blessing. Sheba and Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish, and all their young lions will say to you, Have you come to take a plunder? Have you gathered your army to take booty, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods, to take great plunder? Doesn't that sound like the diplomatic UN and the U.S.? Just uh, when Russia and their mob will get ready to go down against Israel. And that's what you have. By the way, this is the first time in the history of the world that the Russians have worked with the Islamo-fascists and recognize that they have something common. Who's the great supplier of arms? Everybody knows. It's it's Russia. And they're arming up to get ready to do the thing that they all have in common, hate Israel and drive them into the sea. Well, look at verse 18. And I will come, and it will come to pass in that same time when God comes against the land of Israel, says the Lord God, that my fury will show in my face, for in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath I have spoken. 
Surely in that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel, so that the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field, all creeping things that creep on the earth, and all men who are on the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. The mountains shall be thrown down, and the steep places shall fall, and every wall shall fall to the face of the ground. Now, folks, you, you, you that have studied history know that this has never happened. But it will, and it could be close at hand. I will call for a sword against Gog throughout all my mountains, says the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother, and I will bring him to judgment. And with pestilence and bloodshed, I will rain down on him and on his troops and on the many peoples who are with him, flooding rain, great hailstones, fire and brimstone. Thus, I will magnify myself. So what do we have here? We have God's supernatural intervention in the affairs of men. Russia and their hordes will gather around Israel and the Northern Confederation, the Western Confederation will say, what are you doing down there? And won't stand up for Israel. Israel will be abandoned. And the only place they can look in that moment is up to God. And then God, in a supernatural way, protects them. They'll even have... In, look at verse 6 of chap, the next chapter, 39. He rehearses this whole thing. I will send fire on Magog and on those who live in security in the coastlands. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. So I will make my holy name known in the midst. So God is going to destroy the Islamofascists and the Russians, not only on the battlefield, but also those that secretly hide in in the places where they've gone. And I might back up and say that there are some scholars who say that there could be a reference to uh, the United States here. I've never found the United States in in, uh, prophecy, never seen anything that indicates in history any nation that has been as good to the Jew. In fact, I might just uh, slip in this thought. I think the best plan of national defense in America is our treatment of the Jew. In the 12th chapter of Genesis, he makes it very clear that I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curse thee. And I've heard all my life that that someone has said, um, if God doesn't judge America for our sins, we're the pornographic capital of the world, thanks to the liberal uh, Supreme Court justice members. And many of the evils that have happened in my lifetime as we brought people in that are not of a Christian background but are, have a socialist mentality that is no God. Man is the measure of all things and they can solve the problems of, of man independent of God. Bring them in and they change our heritage until we have earned the judgment of God. But personally, compensating for that or balancing that is our treatment of the Jew. If you know history, you know there has never been a nation that has been as good to the Jew as the United States of America. May it ever be so. Not only for the sake of the Jews. Not only for the sake of the Jews, but also for the preservation of America. Now, when will these things be? When is this armada of nations going to go down to Israel making all kinds of threats and talk about if we happen to be alive during this time, don't be surprised if it taxes your faith. We'll be wringing our hands and saying, oh God, what are you going to do? Well, just read this passage and you'll find what he's going to do. When the pressure is on and Israel has no one else to look to, then God will do all these things. He will call fire and brimstone down from heaven. He'll have uh, incredible earthquakes The world will be transformed by the intervention of God, and he'll wipe out this enemy. And I'll show you in a moment why. But when will these things take place? Well, first of all, in the 38th chapter, go back to what I skipped over just briefly. After many days, you will be visited. In the latter years, you will come into the land of those that are brought back from the sword. So when will this take place? In the latter years. That's a term that has to do with the last days. And I'll show you that charted in a moment. In fact, let me show you this chart. God's basic plan for the future. 
Now, I, I'm so glad that all of you have a photographic memory and that you can look at that chart because what I want you to do is burn it into your mind. It is the eschatological plan or the prophetic plan of God for the end times. And you'll find that starting with the cross, the church age, that little green area, I kind of make it skimpy. It's really 2,000 years of great history. Then at the end of that time, you have the, the rapture of the church. And you have the Antichrist who makes a covenant with Israel for seven years. That's during the tribulation period. And if we had time, I I found 49 references in the Old Testament to the tribulation. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, it's called tribulation or the time of Jacob's trouble and many other terms for it. And you'll find that for seven years, he makes a covenant with Israel. And because they're so blessed, they're going to find something in Israel. Someone thinks it's oil. They're they're down 19,000 feet uh, hunting for oil, and they haven't found it yet. Uh, I'm not sure what what they're going to find. But one thing I know, they're going to find the place of the headquarters of the millennium to be a very fertile area. And God is going to make it very attractive to to the enemies of Israel. And during that tribulation period... Notice I have that in red in the diagram. That's only seven years. If we were to put it in according to to scale, it would be so small you could hardly see a blip on the screen. But I've elongated it because it is a very, very important passage of Scripture. In fact, more space is given in the Bible to the tribulation period than any other subject except the life of Jesus and the words of Jesus. And, of course, it is his story. But it shows you the importance of that seven years. And I'd like to put it in perspective very quickly. And that is God, in his marvelous grace, plans for the millennium to come short at the end of the tribulation. We don't wonder when the millennium is going to come. In Matthew 24, Jesus said, immediately after the tribulation of those days, then he, he comes in his glorious appearing and he sets up his kingdom. So during that tribulation period, you have the merciful God of prophecy. And that to me is what he is. He is the the merciful God who is always saying to mankind, come unto me and I will give you rest. Come unto me and I will give you forgiveness. Come unto me and I will bless you. And, of course, the thrilling thing to me is God didn't say, all you perfect people come to me. And you notice that never in the Bible does he do that. Instead, all you that are sinners, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as wool. How could that be? I was on the plane recently, and a man who's obviously a skeptic, he said, you know, the thing I can't understand is how you can believe that one man's blood could atone for all the people that have ever lived and that are on the earth now. And I said, he couldn't. He was kind of startled that I answered that and agreed with him. The only thing we agreed on. And uh, (laughs) he said, how do you explain it? I said, that was not the blood of a man. That was the blood of God, his only begotten son. Now, When you inject God into the formula, could it be that one person's blood could atone? Sure. Quality. And we we understand that today. Okay, now during that tribulation period, the thing I want you to see is God reigns in the book of Revelation. There are 21 specific judgments that he brings on the earth. What is he doing? Trying to torture people? No, no. What God is doing, he knows that the millennium is just around the corner And people will have to make their decision, and they must make it within that seven years. So what he does is he shakes the earth violently from its, so that we lose, or the people living during that time will lose their false sense of security. I live in the earthquake zone, just, you know, a few miles from the the fault zone in California. And uh, that's why I read about all these floods and these, you know. (laughs) plagues and all the other things happening and wonder how long, O Lord, will it be before or after the rapture? My wife and I have a covenant with God. We are going up together in the rapture. Anyway, uh, (laughs) 
But during that tribulation period, what God is doing is he's shaking man, and the result will be just like in 9-11, what happened across America, when suddenly we were bombed for the first time and we're no longer protected by the oceans on each side. Suddenly fear gripped the hearts of people, and many people turned to Christ during that time. Now, some of it was not you know, just emotional, but many were very sincere. Well, that's what God is doing. He's during that tribulation period, he's going to shake the earth, and then he'll also send 144,000 Jews as servants of his out to preach the gospel. Can you imagine what it will do to world evangelism when the Holy Spirit pours out upon 144,000 Apostle Paul types? Wow. We'll see a revival move. There, no wonder that passage in Revelation 7 says the result is that a multitude which no man can number from every tongue and tribe and nation will stand before the Lord. I mean, there's going to be a soul harvest during that time that is just incredible. Well, during that tribulation period, God is getting people ready because when Jesus comes in his glorious appearing, it's too late. You have already made up your decision or people will have made their decision by then. And it, it's no longer opportunity for them to be saved. The only people who will go into the millennium, by the way, will be believers in their natural body. See, the, the population during the millennium is going to be astronomical. That's why I optimistically think there will probably be more people in heaven than in hell because the population... Can you imagine when people will live in the normal lifestyle? And besides, they'll live, some of them, 900 years. Can you think of how many kids you could have if you lived for 900 years? <laughs> what a frightening thought. Bev, Bev and I, Bev and I have only lived together for thirty, for sixty-one years, and we've got four children, nine grandchildren, and next December we'll have ten great grandchildren. That's just in our lifetime. Can you imagine what it's going to be during the millennium? I mean, the population is going to be astronomical, and during that period, Jesus is going to be the King of righteousness. There won't be any pornography. There won't be any filth. In fact, Satan himself won't be able to bind, to tempt people because he'll be in the bottomless pit. The overwhelming, yes. The overwhelming majority of them will be saved during that time. Well, I've got to rush on. Those of you who don't get the rest of this message, read my book. I got three chapters on global warming on this. Anyway, at the end of the tribulation period, the Antichrist and the false prophet are cast alive into the lake of fire. Now, we've already seen when this is going to be, when, when Russia goes down to, to establish, uh, to attack Israel. I'm only halfway through and I've got only seven minutes. Okay. In, in the, the eighth chapter, we've already seen that the, uh, this is a, after many days and after the latter years. Okay, in chapter 38... Verse 11 and 14, it says Israel dwelling safely, and I mentioned that. It could be Armageddon, but I, I'm not sure that that's possible because of something I'm going to share with you in a moment. But the important thing is the seven years of burning. I want you to see in chapter 39, verse 9 through 11, it says, mark this as a special. Then, after he's destroyed them, then those who dwell in the cities of Israel will go out, and set on fire and burn the weapons, both the shields and bucklers, the bows and the arrows, the javelins and spears. They will make fires with them for seven years. Now, they don't take all the implements of war and put them in a big pile and set a, make a big bonfire. They will not take wood from the field nor cut down any for the forest, from the forest because they will make fires with the weapons and they will plunder those who plundered them and pillage those who pillage them, says the Lord our God. Very quickly, what he's doing, he's saying here, is that for seven years, the children of Israel, after this destruction, won't have to cut down any natural trees. Instead, they can use the implements of war. The winters in Israel are somewhat moderate. And uh, they don't need a big bonfire. They need something to heat up their home. 
and they'll find the implements of war. But notice the period of time they're doing this. For seven years. That's very important. If you look at the chart, you've got to locate that seven years somewhere. Now, you can't locate it in the millennium because it's a whole new world going into the millennium. So you have to move it back. Well, it could be the seven years of the tribulation if the uh, if Russia and their allies are destroyed at the beginning of the tribulation. But the last half of the tribulation, you'll find that that's the time when, when uh, Antichrist breaks his covenant with Israel, according to Daniel chapter 9. And so it must be at least before in the first half of the tribulation when he makes a covenant with Israel and keeps it uh, while he's getting ready to take over the control of this world government and then he breaks it in the middle. So if you're putting the seven years of war, you've got to put them before that. It could be three and a half years before because during the last half he's going to persecute the Jews all over the world. So they won't be living in the Holy Land to burn the implements of war. So what I'm saying is you're, you're putting the the uh, destruction of Russia and their uh, Muslim uh, allies at the beginning of that tribulation period. Now, whether it's going to be before the rapture or afterward, I don't know. And no, nobody else does either. Could be either one. Now, I'm not saying it is, but I'm saying it could be. In fact, I'm going to show you in a moment the results of all this and why it's so important. But... Uh, the seven years have to be spent burning that before the millennium begins. And it could be before the rapture or after the rapture. See, one of the mistakes of the pre-trib position is that the rapture does not trigger the tribulation. It's the signing of the covenant with Antichrist and Israel that starts the tribulation according to Daniel 9, which means that Israel could be rescued by God in a supernatural way even before the rapture. And I'll show you that in a moment. But let's quickly go on to something else. I want to get to the why will God do all this. I feel a little bit like the Egyptian mummy. You know how he felt? Press for time. (laughs) Why will God... Why will God destroy the Russian Islamic invaders? Number one, obviously we read in the second verse of chapter 38, because God is against Gog, Magog, and the Arab hordes. Why? Because they're against God and they're against humanity. Why, the, the Russians have never, have caused more death but to more people because of the spread of communism and other things and their governmental dictatorship and spreading dictatorships around the world than any nation in the history of the world. No wonder God is against them because of their godless ambitions and persecution of believers. And then, of course, the Arabs, they have butchered people. You can get a lot of converts when you say, either believe in what we believe in or off with your head. And uh, they have massacred millions of Christians and millions of Jews. It's just incredible. And now what I want you to see is, why will God do all this? This is the exciting part to me. You ready? Put on your thinking cap and turn with me to uh, chapter 38, verse 16. So that the nations may know me when I am hallowed in you, Israel. When God protects Israel, can you imagine what the newspapers of the world will say when they lead up to that massacre and then suddenly God intervenes. And then in verse uh, 23, I will magnify myself and sanctify myself and I will be known in the eyes of many nations. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. Verse 23b. Verse 6 in chapter 39. Fire on Magog and the secret Islamists in the coastlands. Then they will know that I am the Lord. So I will make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel. And then in 39, verse 22, the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord. And in verse 23 of the 39, it says, the Gentiles will know that he is the Lord. Then in chapter, verse 28, 
He says, then Israel will even know that God is Israel's God. Finally, they get the message and has brought their historic calamities on them and now delivered them. In other words, why is God going to do this? Eight times, and I hope you'll copy those down and go back and look look them over. Eight times God is going to do something in my entire lifetime I have wished that God would do. I don't second-guess God. He's God. He makes the rules. He does what he wants. But he is a, a spirit. I've never seen God. I don't know anyone else in his right mind that has seen God. <laughs> and you will find that God doesn't always reveal it. Now, he does miracles. But have you noticed when God performs miracles, he likes to remain anonymous? He wants men to worship him in spirit and in truth. The word is truth. He wants people to hear the word of the Lord and accept him and worship him because of the word, not because of miracles that he performs. Now, he does do miracles, but may I suggest he doesn't use miracles as a means of convincing people they should get saved. All right, now, there is going to be one exception. When God is going to bear his strong arm and once and for all demonstrate that he is the Lord. Eight times in these two chapters, he says to the, in essence, that all the world will know that I am the Lord. Pastor Skip and I were talking during the in-between about the book we both have read by Denusha on what's so great about Christianity. And he ridicules the atheists and the skeptics who are so autocratic. They think they know everything because they've never seen God. And they refuse to acknowledge the things that we're talking about today as being messages from God. But there is going to be one exception. When Almighty God will reveal himself as God so that I don't think there will be any atheists, be rebels, be people who turn against him, but there will, people will not be able to say there is no God. I have never seen any evidence of God. They will say Israel has been spared by the supernatural power of God. And what will be the result? An enormous soul harvest. That's why, personally, I hope we're still alive when all this takes place. It could happen this year, next year, a few more years. It depends on the election. <laughs> but I think I know something about God in my 61 years. I have found God is a merciful God. We were singing about it so beautifully earlier today. God looks at this world. And how many people does he want to be saved? Just we, just we Scotsmen or Irishmen or, you know, Germans or Arabs or whoever. You know, my, my favorite verse in the whole Bible, besides John 3.16 and about 12 other verses, is Second Peter 3.9. It's not God's will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And that's the will of God for you. God's will for everyone in this room, it starts out the same. It's not his will that you perish. And how can you avoid perishing? By calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Where you say, yes, Jesus, I believe you died for my sins. And you rose again the third day. By the way, why did he rise the third day? Because he said he would. (laughs) Seven times in the gospel. It went right over the heads of the apostles. They were so depressed. But he said, I am going to die. And I'm going to rise again. Like Jonah was three days and three nights, you know, the whole drill. Seven times he predicted he would. Why didn't he rise on the second day or the fourth or fifth day? Because it would be on the third day. That's the sign that we know, we know we're right. That Jesus 
is the one and only way of salvation. So let me close this meeting. Jerry Jenkins, my fiction co-writer on the Left Behind series, and I have received thousands of letters, emails, personal conversations that people here already have told me that they read the books and they accepted Jesus. And as Jerry says in his inimitable way, I never tire of hearing that. I can say the same. It's It's music to our ears. One of the letters that sticks out in my mind is a registered nurse who wrote somewhere back east. And she said, Pastor LaHaye, we just buried my father who died at 84. When he was 82, he went blind. And being a nurse, our children are graduated. We invited him to stay in our home. And he came to live with us. And she said, Dad, you remember when I was a little girl, you wouldn't let us pray at mealtime. You said, there's nobody up there and I don't, we don't pray in this house. And so he, she, she said, because we lived in your house, we abided by your rules. Now you live in my house and you abide by my rules. <laughs> and so she said, we pray at every meal and we pray at night and I read the Bible. And so she, you know, he's blind. He, he's at her mercy. And so he agreed. And uh, she read many portions. And one, one day he said to her, honey, uh, would you read fiction to me? I, I miss fiction. I really enjoyed it. And she said, yes, I will. (laughs) And she started with uh, Left Behind. And she got all the way through to the fourth book. And she kissed him goodnight, went out. He's 82 or three years old by this time. And uh, she went in the next morning. And he had a big smile on his face. And he said, honey, you don't have to pray for me anymore. Last night, I prayed the prayer of Rayford Steele. Remember that prayer? (laughs) Ten days after his memorial service, she writes this note to me. She said, Dear Pastor LaHaye, can you just feel her heart? Would God... Forgive a man who rejected him over 82 years of his life, who blasphemed his name and talked against him. Would he forgive him just a few weeks before he was saved? And I was tempted to take my letterhead, a big felt pen, and say, yes! (laughs) Because that's what he does. He loves all mankind in spite of our sin. And the good news is there's nobody here that has sinned too great but what God can cleanse your sin. Let's bow together for prayer. With every head bowed and every eye closed, look into your heart and answer the most important question in life. Have you really called on the name of the Lord? If you can't think of a time when you really did, When you prayed that simple prayer, Oh God, I believe Jesus is your son. He died on the cross for our sins, my sins. I want him to come in and save me. Forgive me. Let me into your heaven someday. If that's your need, make it your prayer. The neat thing is God hears the heart cry of any individual. He loves you. He's demonstrated that. What could he do more than give his own son to die for you? Are you willing to call upon him? You say, well, Tim, I'm not sure I know how to pray. Let me word a prayer for you. Oh, God, just say this in your heart. Oh, God, forgive me. I have sinned against your son. I've rejected him. But I realize he is the only way of salvation. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Forgive my soul. Cleanse me. If that's your prayer, 
your need. Make it your prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this great conference and these people who love your prophetic word. And I pray that they may have burned into their heart and soul that you are going to demonstrate your presence one day to this lost and dying world and that they can walk by sight as well as by faith. Speak to us in these closing moments, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.